Well, Nick talked about preparation for worship. Uh, now we're going to get to look at some of those aspects of worship, and I'll be addressing corporate prayer. So let's talk about a definition for corporate prayer. I really see kind of two, two aspects when it comes to corporate prayer. The, the real simple one is the idea is that when we gather together as a body, um, there's prayer. Okay, That would be corporate prayer. We're gathered as a body, and so we have the body praying. That's, that's maybe one aspect of it. But then there's a second aspect of corporate prayer where you have one person, essentially speaking, for the body to the Lord. A lot of times you'll see that uh, when a pastor, you know, he'll either pray and then read the passage of Scripture that he's going to be primarily focusing on, or um, he'll read the, the Scripture and then pray. But a lot of times, I mean, what is he doing? He's really praying. It's just not him in his, in his prayer closet having a little, you know, time praying to Jesus. I mean, he's praying on behalf of the church at that moment, really, in a sense, representing them, praying to the Lord. So that's, that's the other side. Sometimes we will have times of corporate prayer specifically designed where I'll target some individuals and ask them to come up. And, and when they're doing that, it's not just like, oh, I'd like Steve Sanders to just talk to Jesus on his own and we're just going to kind of eavesdrop. No, I mean, he's really talking to the Lord on our behalf. And, and that's why we're saying amen and yes, that's true, and, and we're agreeing with what he is saying. We see a couple aspects. So the, my first point is a biblical theology of corporate prayer. And when you think about the different places that Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the, in the uh, New Testament, how they gathered together and what their, their worship service looked like, you think about the different places that they gathered. So the first place they really gathered was the tabernacle, right? And, and when you think about all those books of the Old Testament where God is setting up the tabernacle and he's setting up how he wants, how he wants it to look, I mean, even literally how he wants the tabernacle to look, how it's set up. But when I was kind of researching this and preparing and reading Old Testament um, passages, the primary focus when you look and talk about the tabernacle and even the temple, is on the sacrifices. I mean, you think about Exodus, and we get all this information about all the different sacrifices. You think about Leviticus, all this information on the sacrifices. And you think about um, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all this information on the sacrifices. A lot of the focus is on the sacrifice, but, but it really makes sense, a lot of sense, to believers. Why? Because what did, what did God want them focusing on? The sacrifice. Why? Because that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, right? So a lot of that uh, worship in the Old Testament, even though there, there was prayer and even though there was singing, a lot of times what we get is a whole lot about the sacrifices because that was meant to point them. It wasn't just an end in and of itself. Just killing the bull was not an end of itself. It was to point to Christ. That was like a shadow of the real thing to come. So, <clears throat> you know, we get a song. Moses is singing a song towards the end of his life. We actually looked at it a couple weeks ago in a sermon. Miriam sings a song uh, after the Egyptians are totally obliterated when they cross the Red Sea. So you have these, these glimpses of, of worship and singing. You have glimpses of prayer. We have one specific example I just want to look at in regards to the tabernacle. Turn with me to Leviticus 
chapter 16. And this is dealing with the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, as, as it would be called in the Hebrew, the Day of Atonement. We're not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to draw your attention to one specific verse. And it's in verse 21 of Leviticus 16. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. So, I mean, what is he doing there? He's, he, it says, confess over it all the iniquities. So, I mean, he is, he is speaking on behalf of the people to God. And he's really confessing the sins of the people, right? That's what he's doing. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So here we have Aaron representing really the entire nation of Israel before God, confessing their sins, and then those sins are placed on, on this goat, really called the scapegoat. So that is really the, the tabernacle. When it, once it shifts towards the temple, we still get all the sacrificial system that is still in place. Nothing changes. All the ceremonial law is there. All the moral law is there. All the civil law is still there. But we get, we get David who wants to build a temple, and what does God tell him? He tells him no. But he also tells him, what? Your son will, right? And so then David lays out all the plans for the temple, but Solomon is the one who ends up actually building the temple. And we get the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings. Look, look there with me at 1 Kings chapter 8. And Solomon has this prayer. It's a pretty long prayer. But I want you to notice something. Once this prayer starts off, it starts off in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. I'm in 1 Kings 8. Stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So, I mean, he is setting the stage and, and calling God who he really is, this steadfast, covenant-keeping God who's always been there for Israel. We're going to pick it up again in verse 27. And he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. But then notice what he says, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. So, Lord, like people are going to be praying here, please listen to their prayer. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there that you may, be, may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And then notice it again in verse 30. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. So, I mean, this is the dedication of the temple. And how is, how is Solomon essentially setting the stage? He's, he's, he is, is acting as the, the, the king over Israel. 
And he's setting the stage saying, hey, this is going to be a house of prayer. And Lord, whoever comes here, we're going to see it. Whoever comes here and they're praying, please listen. I'm, you know, I'm asking that you would hear their prayers. It goes on. We're going to pick it up in 33, verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. It goes on, 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name. Did you see that? So there's the location of the temple, but, but key to it is acknowledging God for who he really is, not just one of those other deities like with all the other deities there. Not just like a henotheism, like where there's a lot of gods, but he's kind of a little bit above the rest. No, like true acknowledging who God is, the only one true God. So 35, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways." And then, it, and then it picks it up in verse 41. And notice this. Likewise, when a foreigner, you know, underline that or circle it, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called your name. On and on again, the prayer continues talking about praying and praying and people coming to the temple to seek God. Not just the Israelites, but here as we saw, the foreigner. The foreigner comes. And, and, and what's important here is it's the foreigner who comes from a far country for your namesake. Again, this person is a follower of Yahweh. He's not just, oh, well, I got my God, but I'm in the land of Israel, and I'm going to make a little stop by that temple. No. He knows he's there for God's namesake. He knows who this God is, the, the great name, it says, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. So he knows who this God is. He fears him, and he comes to pray to seek this God. So uh, the idea is, is let this be a place where what? Prayer happens. What's the focus? Prayer. I mean, did they sing worship songs there? Yes, they did. Did they sacrifice animals there? Yes, they sacrificed quite a few. But what's the focus? Prayer. So Solomon dedicates the temple, not just with some like kingly words, but he's, it's in the form of a prayer that he starts out the use of the temple. And what is he asking the Lord for? To hear their prayers. Even think when, when Solomon and then Israel gets off course and then the temple is actually destroyed, right? Then 
uh, in the book of Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel comes back. A lot of people don't even actually know that part, but Zerubbabel is the one that really starts, and he's the one that lays the foundations of rebuilding the temple. Then Ezra comes as, as like the second wave of people. He brings like the second wave. Zerubbabel was part of the first wave. But, but look what Ezra does, because I want you to see this in Ezra chapter 9. It's right after Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So they just laid that foundation. It says in verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, so it's the evening sacrifice. I mean, where is he at? I mean, at this temple that's just been, is being really rebuilt. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. Notice how it's this, it's this collective us. It's this collective we. I mean, he's praying not just him and the Lord, but he is praying, representing the people Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And he goes on and talks again. He's talking we. we. What is he doing? Representing He's praying with the people, for the people, but he's praying on behalf of the people. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see the same emphasis on prayer. And my second point is, is what kind of a house? You know, God has a house in heaven. You know, Jesus talks about John 14 and my father's house. There are many rooms, right? And in Hebrews 8, it says, uh, we get this, this verse, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. From when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Right? So, so what they had there with the tabernacle, with the temple, it was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So then Jesus comes, and in, in Matthew 21, he, he makes this, this interesting statement that I want to I want to focus on for just a little bit. Matthew 21. And we all know the story, but we'll we'll read it again. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now he's quoting from Isaiah here. But here's my question. What kind of a house is it? A house of prayer. Guess what the house of prayer should have? Prayer. Thank you. All right? The house of prayer should have prayer. Not as a side note, but as a main feature. 
as a main feature. Pause for a moment. What, is, what does house of prayer even mean? I mean, it's a house that is replete with prayer. It's filled with it. It's well supplied with prayer. It's an essential part of it, not a side note. Of all the different words we could use to describe God's house, I mean, think of them. You could call it a house of worship, a house of sacrifice, a house of singing, a house of God's word. Guess what? Only house of sacrifice appears in the scriptures, and it just appears once. All the other times, we get house of prayer. It's a house of prayer. This is how God himself, Isaiah, it, I mean, Isaiah is writing the words, but he's like, this is what the Lord says. It's my house of prayer. It is a house of prayer. That's how God himself describes his house. And if we want to enter into his house, and it's a house of prayer, what should we better be doing when we come in? We better be praying, right? We have to come with prayer on our lips. This is what we're talking about when I title my talk, The Corporate Amen. We're all joining together. Why a house of prayer? Because it was a place for the people to come before God. And not just to come before God, but to speak to Him. To seek His face. And even though the priests... You know, they had to mediate, yet people could talk to God. I mean, that's what Solomon was acknowledging. Hey, when they come and pray, I mean, they're talking to the Lord. So the Israelites in the wilderness, they could talk to God. The Israelites in the promised land, they could talk to God. The Israelites in the Davidic kingdom, they could talk to God. Guess what? How much more so now? Like, how much more so now? Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, talking to us Gentiles, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So how much more now that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ that we can talk to God? And how much more now? Because, because back then in, in Old Testament Israel, what did that mean? They had a priesthood, Right? And the priests really were the ones. And then just once a year, once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year, the Holy of Holies, the high priests could enter in to appear before God. How much more now, all of us, guess what? We're all priests. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Okay? Like, that's the priesthood of believers you hear sometimes talked about right from here. We're the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who is he talking about? He's talking about us. You and you and you and you and you, you're, you're priests. We're not even Catholic. <laughs> <clears throat> but what's the idea behind this? You can enter into the presence of God. And you can enter the presence of God to intercede on behalf of others. You can speak the word. You can pray. You can intercede for others. There's no barrier any longer. You don't need the priest to go on your behalf. And it's not just one man once a year. Not just the day of atonement. No, it's every believer every day of the year. And the Lord wants people entering into his presence. Doesn't he want people entering into his presence? And he wants us to know that he is approachable. 
that you can talk to him, that you can present your request to him. Think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. But in what? But in everything by prayer, right? Everything. How many things? Everything. How many things is everything? It's everything. Yeah, that's right. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Everything. So even when you think about, so Jesus is here, I mean, he's just, he's just quoting his dad, right? Um, and, and that's why he's upset, because he saw that the place of prayer had been turned into like a marketplace, right? Making money when what should have been going on. They're, I mean, they're exchanging money and, and, and selling stuff. But what should have been going on? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough to pray when it's just like quiet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think if, if, if people are exchanging money and there's all sorts of activity, it's kind of hard to pray. Jesus was upset about that, rightfully so. But, but when you think about Jesus with his disciples even, and, they're, and, and he's trying to instruct them, and sometimes they have some challenges getting that through their head, um, just like we do, right? Like Jesus tries to get stuff through us. It doesn't always work so well he's so gracious to us but he's he's instructing them and look how he instructs them how to pray matthew matthew chapter 6 turn there i mean in matthew 6 i mean we call it the lord's prayer he is verbally laying out for them how to pray he gives us some instructions in the beginning, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, now he's really talking about like our quiet time prayer. Like, don't be saying it so everyone can hear you. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been where someone's praying and they're really praying like to impress you with how good they're praying. That's not cool. The Lord's not down with that. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentile, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And here's what I want you to notice. Look how he starts. Our Father. Notice the corporate aspect to it. Our. This entire prayer has a, a, a majorly strong emphasis on the corporateness of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give who? Us. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive who? Us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead who? Us. Not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Listen, this mediator of a new covenant, our Savior Jesus, taught not just individuals how to pray, but he's teaching here a people how to pray. After all, they are united under one Father, our Father. And we're to ask, think about it, they're not just asking for their own bread. Give us, the, I mean, they're asking for other people's bread to be given to them too, right? And they're asking for other temptations to, to, to uh, give us, lead us not into temptation. They're asking for other people also to not be led 
into temptation. I mean, there's, you see the corporateness to it, right? Not just praying me for me, but praying us for us. So they weren't to ask just for their own bread and deliverance, but for one another's. So when we get to the early church, we see them keep with this same practice. That makes sense. They're disciples of Jesus. They follow after him. And we see here that the prayer is not cursory, meaning it's not hasty and therefore not thorough or detailed. No, it's not cursory. We see that prayer is key. Prayer was never, never, never cursory in the New Testament. It was key and central to the life of the New Testament church. Not just individually, but corporately. We'll see a few instances of this in Acts. Look at Acts chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 9, Acts 1. And when he, talking about Jesus, and when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves, what were they devoting themselves to? To prayer. Now, I mean, I mean don't miss the congruity of this narrative that's just been laid out for you. Like Jesus, like just, I mean, maybe 15 minutes ago had been raised up into heaven. What does it say? They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Guess what? A Sabbath day's journey, it's really short. According to the Pharisees, you couldn't go very far without breaking the Old Testament law of doing work on the Sabbath. So they had a definition of how far you could go on the Sabbath. So it was a Sabbath day's journey, meaning it was a short journey. So they, they go back, Jesus rides up, they go back, and when they had entered, so we're still in the story, still in the same narrative, they went to the upper room, and then it gives all the people there, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Like right away, boom. Jesus goes up into heaven. Where do they go? They're praying. They're praying. They don't waste any time. So it's not like they weren't doing other things, but this was primary. It wasn't secondary. It wasn't like a tack on. In fact, the only thing this passage specifically mentions to us that they devoted themselves to was prayer. So they're gathered together, they're praying. Uh, about 40 verses later, Acts chapter 2, we see the same thing continue on. Peter gives the first sermon, so to speak. About 3,000 people get saved. And it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I'm in Acts 2, verse 42. To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now this, this word devote in both places, it has the idea to persist in something. To persist in something. To be busily engaged in. 
to be devoted to. And it has the sense of holding fast, of persevering in something, of continuing on. And it's interesting, uh, in, <clears throat> in verse, if you just look uh, a couple of verses earlier, in, actually just one in verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That word baptized is just like, boom, they were baptized, one-time deal, it's over. Same with the added. Okay, boom, they were added to the roles of the book of life, right? Boom, it's over. But once we get to, and they devoted themselves, it's not just like, oh, boom, one time they devoted themselves. No, it's, it gives the idea in the Greek of this continual devotion over and over and over. That was how they were characterized. That's what they did repeatedly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking bread and the prayers. About five verses later, we keep reading chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Well, why were they going up to the temple at the ninth hour? To pray, right? They're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Why? It's time for us to pray, right? Now they, they get an opportunity there and they use it as a witnessing opportunity and this person gets healed. <clears throat> but, but Luke connects this, I mean, ninth hour, that's like three o'clock. And, and if you study some of the, uh, of, of the Talmud, you can see that you know, they had like a morning sacrifice and an afternoon or an evening sacrifice. And, and this is when they're going up uh, to partake in it. Already within like the first 75 verses of Acts, we're just in like the first two chapters plus one verse, like we're seeing this emphasis on prayer. One more chapter. Look at Acts chapter 4. This is right after they get, they get released. <clears throat> it says... In verse 23, chapter 4, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, I mean, this is, this is I mean, notice the pluralness there, right? They lifted their voices. Is this just, is this just one of the apostles praying? No. This is them corporately lifting their voices. They lift their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, they're still praying, and now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then how does it wrap it up? And when they had prayed... Okay, they're all praying. They're praying it corporately. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's corporate prayer. 
it characterized the life of the early church. It wasn't cursory, wasn't just a side note, but it was key. It wasn't just a believer at home by himself praying in his closet. That's good. You should do that. But it was the church gathered praying to the Lord. When they gathered, guess what? They prayed. It really was that simple. And guess what? It really is that simple. When we gather, we pray. One, one last passage we'll look at. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Actually, we're going to start in chapter 2. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our, God, our Savior. Now, that's awesome, and you might be like, hey, that's something that we should do, you know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to you right now without going into it too far, because I don't think I have to, to, to prove the point, that, that what Paul is doing here in writing to Timothy is he is setting up how he wants the worship of God to occur when they gather together. He's like, how do you know that? Okay, well, it's real simple. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. This is Paul writing, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, if we don't really have time to go through it all the way, but if you read chapter 2 and chapter 3, I mean, it just makes perfect sense. What's he doing in chapter 3? He's saying, hey, here's the qualifications for deacons and elders, okay? What's he doing? He is setting up the church and the church service. What's he laying out in chapter 2? Hey, first of all, that's what I think is key for us right here tonight. First of all, hey, I'm setting it up. Here's how I want, when you're gathered together, here's how I want that service to flow. First of all, first of all. And then, and he's just like, I want you to pray. No, I mean, listen, I mean, and, I, and I've done this before, I think, with Change the Globe years ago, but first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. I mean, those are all different types of prayers. But guess what the point is? I really want you praying, right? I want supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, right? And it's not just, not, you're not just praying for yourselves. We need to do that. But I mean, he gives us a much broader picture here and a much higher picture for kings and all who are in high positions. And part of the reason is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. I mean, but he is setting it up. That's why he gets all the way down to the, oh, that really unpopular verse that some people don't like. But when he gets down to, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I mean, what's he doing there? He's talking about in the, in the congregated assembly. Who's the teaching to? It's given to the man. Okay. What's the woman? The woman has a role. It's a beautiful role. He goes on and he, I mean, the woman gets more attention here than the man does. Okay. And we won't look into it, but he gives some reasons why God has set it up that way. But the whole point is, is what he's laying out is when the church is gathered, what does he want to occur? And then he tells us, first of all, first of all, he wants prayer. That's what he wants. This is the command for us. Okay, So it didn't just characterize the life of the early church, which it did but it was commanded of the early church. 
And we see they grabbed that command and followed it out really well. Characterize the life of the early church, and guess what, brothers and sisters? It should characterize the life of our church as well. Now, if we want to talk about our prayer lives, they say if you want to humble someone, just ask them how their prayer life is. Right? Why do we fail to pray so well? We pray little because we believe little. That's the truth. You want God to do a work in your church? You want God to do a work in your life? It will happen when we become a people of prayer. Not just a formality of prayer, but an intentionality of prayer. Not just something that is required, but something that is desired. We want to come before the Lord with hearts set on Him, corporately, together. When you think about the disciplines, even just for a moment, this is almost like a side note, but I mean, think about the Christian disciplines that, that we're commanded to do. You know, read the word, right? Gather together. Nick had the verse from Hebrews 10 up there. Prayer. I mean, we talk about it, but I think it's the most neglected discipline. And, and just think for a moment how key it is. Are we told to read always? Are we told to sing always? No. But, but what are we told to always do? Pray always, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, right? Then even Paul says it again in Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I mean, he, you know, both these passages here and in Ephesians, it's like praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I mean, he can't, it's like he can't say, emphasize it enough. Praying at all times with all prayer and with all supplication. Like, hey, make sure you're praying. That's how key it is. It's very integral to who we are as believers. Now, some will ask, like, if God is sovereign, why pray? Friends, that is why we pray. Because God is sovereign. I mean, he can actually do something about our requests. What's the point in praying, if God is sovereign, some people will ask. I mean, he's just going to do his own thing, right? I mean, no, 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 no. Like, what's the point in praying if God isn't sovereign? Think about that. If he's not in control, like, why bother praying? If he can't do anything about it, if he's not sovereign, if he's just helpless and hopeless, no, I pray because he is in control because he is over all things. Because he is on the throne. He has all power and authority. And he can do something about whatever situation that you're dealing with. So go to the one who has the authority and all power to do something about it. That's why we pray. And why is it so integral? Because it is us beseeching God to come among us. To hear our prayer. It's us asking God for something Guess what that requires of us? That requires us to humble ourselves. That's hard to do. Maybe that's one of the reasons we don't pray so much. It is humbling. But we humble ourselves before God and we're like, Lord, we can't do it, but we know you can. Lord, I've totally screwed up this situation, but I know you can walk me through it. So we go to the one who has the answers. Lord, please hear me and answer me. 
And listen, you know, we can have a worship service about God, and we can have a worship service for God, and we can have a worship service with God, but listen, if he's here, then we need to talk to him. Yes, acknowledge his presence. Yes, sing his praises. Yes, bow before him, but we also commune with him. To the very first greeting, to the very final amen, prayer should be woven throughout the service. The worship team should model it. The worship leader should model it. The pastors should model it. And the members should model it. It is not something that we do perfunctory. Like it, that just means we carried it out with like minimal effort. You know, I just like, okay, uh, we got we to gotta pray here, you know. No, I, I try to be very intentional with my prayers. I hope you've realized that. And I, I, it is very, very, can be challenging at times, especially if, if you're maybe in my position where you're weekly and maybe more than praying publicly, not just to fall into like the same old prayer. But that takes intentionality. It also takes being really in communion with the Lord so that you are praying according to his will. And you're not just praying the same thing. That can fall into a rut, and then it ends up perfunctory. You're just tacking it on. No, from the beginning to the end, the entire service should be interwoven with prayer, and there needs to be prayer in the service. Okay, you'll notice, I hope, that, that my prayers aren't just off the cuff and, and bless this service and a lot of times I don't just pray. Sometimes I do because that's what I feel like the Lord's leading me to do, but it's usually not just like a 30-second prayer before I pray. No, because I feel like anyone who, definitely anyone who's picking up the microphone on a Sunday and saying, Lord, I mean, you're speaking for all of us. You, you don't want to, I mean, that should feel a little bit of a heavy weight. I definitely feel the weight. And, and so we want to make sure that whatever we're praying is according to his will. And it's not just something, oh, I got to say a little prayer before I start my sermon. That's not how I'm thinking whatsoever. So I'm looking and I'm trying to think more of the big picture that Paul commands us in 1 Timothy for kings and all who are in high positions. So that's why I will pray for different key positions in this, uh, in this United States, or we'll pray for Ukraine, or we'll pray for Belize, or we'll pray for the church that had that horrible tragedy happen in South Carolina years ago. Like, we'll take time as a church to intercede for our brothers and sisters. We'll take time as a church to intercede for ourselves, even. But we're coming, and it's not just an off-the-cuff thing. Here's the picture of corporate prayer. It is us coming together. It's the hand, the foot, the arm, the leg. Those parts are unified as one body. Unified in thought, unified in action, and unified in voice. So we sing with one accord. Sometimes a little bit off pitch, that's okay. <clears throat> but we sing with one accord. But we pray as one voice. And when someone is praying and, and, and you say yes, which, which we should, and you say amen, which we should, and you say that's right, which we should, I mean, to what they're praying, you're, you're joining them in the prayer. I mean, you don't have to say something to join them in the prayer, but the, the point is, uh, you shouldn't be like, oh, that's, that's Joe over there, and he's just having his own little time with the Lord praying out loud. No, that's Joe right now before God uh, praying on our behalf. And that's justice on Sunday morning with the call to worship, praying on our behalf. Yeah. 
So you should very much say yes and, and, and agree in prayer, whether it's verbal or not. There should be a yes and amen and a that's right. Because it is us praying. It's us praying. You're praying with them. And they're praying on your behalf. It is very much a corporate act. So my heart for us, you know, when, when however long our service is, it starts at whatever, 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings, and we're about an hour and 15 minutes or so. Like, we don't just want prayer woven throughout. But, I mean, I hope, I hope there's just prayer it's just saturated in prayer. It's so thick we could cut it with a knife. And what I mean is like, even when I'm up here preaching, and I know some of you, and you let me know, and it greatly encourages me that you're, you're praying for me. And it means a lot. I appreciate it, okay? Because when, when people are like, you know, man, that was a really good sermon that, that spoke to me, I realize that that is all God, first of all, but it's the prayer of the saints, and, and God's answering that prayer. Because y'all have taken time out of the, your week, or even in the service, which I really appreciate, is you're interceding before the throne for me. You're interceding before the throne for the worship team. You're interceding before the throne for our worship leader, right? That's what we're doing. And when we're praying and there's pauses between songs, you know, feel free to pray. Feel free to do that, to intercede before the Lord from beginning to end. We don't just want it to be something that we, we feel like we got to tack on here or there, but we want an intentionality to it. Friends, we are privileged to come before the living God. Hallelujah. And whatever word you want to speak to him, whatever word, he will listen to it. Yes, he, will. he will listen. And sometimes we've come, and, and, and let's just be honest, we've been pretty upset and mad and frustrated, and, and we've said things to the Lord, and, and, and then we've had to repent of those things, right? Because we've, we've been upset. But if you're going to be upset with God, at least go to God with that upsetness. At least go to him. Because he's the one that can deal with it. And a lot of times, at least I've noticed in the times that, where I've been at, at that place, like as I'm praying and frustrated and, and sometimes even yelling, like he's working on my heart and I can feel it, right? I'm sometimes resisting. But, but the idea is, is like we are privileged to come and bring anything we want. And guess what? He can answer that. He can answer it. He can answer it. Nothing is too big for him. I mean, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's impossible, right? And I say pray big. Pray big. Because we serve a God, we serve a really big God. Yes, we do. And you can't pray bigger than who God is. So pray big, believe big, okay? We pray little because we believe little. Let's start believing big. And let's beseech God for things that we know please his heart, for, for miracles that we want to see happen, for hearts that we want to see changed. Because friends, I mean, that's what he's, Justice and I were talking just earlier, probably just a couple hours ago. Wish I could tell you the story. It's not time to yet. <clears throat> um, but someone years and years and years and years and years ago that, that he and I ministered to that was in a, a rut of a rut of a rut of a rut. And, and God got a hold of that person and completely had them do like a 180 and save them, and they are walking with Jesus. And, and it just, I mean, even to this day, it's like, man, like that's one of those people, like if God can save that person, like he can save anybody. I mean, seriously. And here's a walking testimony to what God can do in someone's life. I mean, he's like a walking miracle. And friends, that is the God that we serve. He touches lives, he changes lives, he answers prayer. So let's come before him corporately and pray.
Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you. I come on behalf of this church, on behalf of the people here. First, what a privilege just to talk to you, the creator of the universe. And we don't even just address you as creator or God or Lord, all appropriate titles, but we are privileged to call you Father. And we're your children. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you that, that you are an amazing father that longs to hear us speak to you. You want to commune in fellowship with your children. Thank you for being our amazing God who loves us, who created us, who sent his son for us, and that we can come into your presence. We can, it says in Hebrews, approach the throne with confidence. Not a self-confidence, but a confidence that comes from the blood of Christ. We thank you that you're here right now. Lord, renew in us uh, a desire to pray, a spirit to pray, a desire to, to come into your presence. Forgive us for at times not believing that you can do certain things, for not believing you can follow through on what you've said, God. Thank you that it says in, in, in Timothy that, that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. You are a faithful God time and time again. Even when your own children are faithless, you are there. You pick us up. You walk with us. You carry us when needed, which is a lot. You are always there. Lord, I pray even now, <clears throat> whatever is going on in different people's lives, you'd minister um, to the hurt that is present in this room. That you'd speak to people's hearts reaffirm your love for them that wherever they're at whatever they're going through uh, you promise to never leave them nor forsake them and that as dark as it might get you are the bright shining light remind them of that and let them see it thank you for the privilege of calling you our father thank you for your love your mercy and your grace that you shower upon us time after time after time you truly are a good and gracious father we love you. Amen.